Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the 1980s, a company that was known to make not-so-great refrigerators got a customer complaint. There was a newish manager running the company, and he knew he was going to do things differently. So he had workers inspect the 400 refrigerators that they had in their warehouse. 76 appeared to be somehow defective. The manager got those 76 refrigerators, moved out onto the street, and workers hacked at them with sledgehammers till they were in tiny bits. About 30 years later, that company was so massive and so innovative, it bought General Electric's appliance division in a multi-billion dollar deal. And the manager's emphasis on quality and doing things differently from how they'd been done, it turned out to be a sign of things to come. China is moving from imitation to innovation. So, you know, they've gone beyond just copying Western products to innovating themselves, but in a Chinese way that is different from the West. That's George Yip, a professor of marketing and strategy at Imperial College Business School in London. And he's talking about a Chinese company called Hire, which was once known for not-so-great refrigerators. You've probably never heard of it. I had never heard of it. But that's kind of the point. It turns out it's the world's number one maker of large home appliances. The saying is that while the West is good at going from zero to one, China is very good at going from one to 100. So China really implements innovations. Yip says America isn't paying nearly enough attention to what's coming at us. He's the co-author, most recently, of Pioneers, Hidden Champions, Changemakers, and Underdogs, Lessons from China's Innovators. And he says what's coming at us isn't just inexpensively manufactured products. It's a China that's got its sights set on much, much bigger things, like the kind of inventive thinking that we like to think we're pretty good at. And Hire, that Chinese appliance company, is an awfully good example of the challenge that we're facing. They came up with a very clever innovation. They designed a fridge with three temperatures of compartments. And the third compartment was designed for the food that is the most important for Americans. Now think about this for a minute. What is America's favorite food? Or at least, what do the Chinese think our favorite food is? It's ice cream. Because normally when you take ice cream out of the icebox, it's too hard and you have to wait. And the Chinese got the insight that Americans don't like to wait. So this is at an in-between temperature. You can eat it, the ice cream, immediately. And it's a typical Chinese innovation in that it required an investment in engineering hours to design it and the manufacturing capability to, ma- to build it economically. Putting aside a bunch of interesting cross-cultural perceptions there, and I don't know, maybe our favorite food is ice cream, there's a serious question. Is our government paying any attention to how China is going to affect us in the future? Or are we mostly stuck in the past? I do think this administration is overly focused on a short-term headline deal that they can announce with the Chinese president that's going to focus on things that aren't particularly strategic. That's Ian Bremmer, president of the Eurasia Group and G-Zero Media. He says when he looks at the risks for America in 2019, one of the biggest ones is that the relationship between Washington and Beijing is broken. And despite all the ups and downs on tariffs, it can't be put back together. Which, if you've been listening to President Trump, may not come as too much of a shock. What China has done, you know, we have rebuilt China. People say, oh, you don't like China. No, I love them. But their leaders are much smarter than our leaders. China has been taking advantage of the United States for a long time. And that's not happening anymore. We can't let that happen. China is upset because of the way Donald Trump is talking about trade with China. 
They're ripping us off, folks. It's time. I'm so happy they're upset. They haven't been upset with us in 30 years. They're never upset. Ian Bremmer says he isn't sure that he agrees with Trump that Chinese leaders are smarter than us, but they operate in a very different political system. It has downsides, which we will talk about, but partisan gridlock isn't one of them. We have our electoral cycles, very limited periods of time when any legislation can be done, massive dysfunctionality in Congress and between legislature and executive branches of government, and the idea that the United States would spend a lot of money on infrastructure or on you know, the public sector trying to really build much better education for young people and getting them up to speed in the technical skills that they need. I mean, that's what the Chinese do. The Chinese are building massive infrastructure and educational capacity in China and around the world. And frankly, nobody else is doing it. So, I mean, our companies may be the best in the world still, and they mostly are. But in terms of public strategy, we're nowhere close which is a scary thought. And scarier still, says Bremer, is that the Chinese may succeed because of a page that they're taking right out of the American playbook. The thing that really should be worrying the United States strategically is not that the Chinese are ripping off American IP, which they do, but rather that they're taking American strategy. That the, the way the Americans built a global order after World War II was the Marshall Plan. It was taking countries around the world, both our allies and our defeated enemies, and rebuilding them in our image and creating a system that allowed us all to work together. Now, the Chinese are not trying to be a part uh, of this American-led system. They're instead doing Belt and Road, the Belt and Road Initiative. They're doing the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the China Development Bank. And they're spending trillions of dollars um, on infrastructure in, in countries all over the world to align them more with China. It's not a multilateral system. It's a hub-and-spoke system. The Belt and Road does go to Beijing. And those countries are going to um, be listening much more in terms of political decisions, in terms of aligning their technology standards to the Chinese. That means that when new phones are rolled out or new TVs, lots of countries are going to say, you know, we're going to go with Chinese standards because we're part of agreements with them. And they help us out with building roads and building trains and on and on. And if you're wondering, well, then maybe we should take a page from the Chinese who are taking a page from us. We couldn't remotely do that if we wanted to. There's no government willingness in the U.S. to spend that kind of money to try to respond to the Chinese. So even if many of our allies would much rather work with the Americans than with the Chinese, if the Americans aren't writing checks, then we're not in the ballgame. And, and we're not giving these countries much of a choice. And the ball game has changed. While our political rhetoric often assumes that China is the country that takes our low-cost manufacturing jobs, and there's some truth to that, the future threat that China may pose is something that Bremer says lots of Americans have not yet wrapped their minds around. There is this sense of American exceptionalism that for a very long time, our presumption in the U.S., in the West as a whole, but definitely in the U.S., first and foremost, was that as China became wealthier, they would reform economically and politically to become more like us. 
a free market economy with rule of law and political reforms, more transparency in the way the governance actually worked. That hasn't happened, and it's not going to happen. And so as a consequence, we're not willing um, to allow the Chinese to work with us in creating the rules and how the world order will be constructed. We're basically saying, you either accept our rules or we're going to fight you. And uh, the Chinese, quite understandably, want absolutely none of that. So the trust levels between the two governments right now is close to zero. Hmm. Even though there are lots of areas that the two governments could, in principle, be cooperating reasonably well, the potential to actually fix that trust gap really isn't there, not remotely. And I do believe, by the way, that Trump and Xi Jinping are incented and will end up with some kind of a framework agreement or deal that both sides will be able to trumpet in terms of the headlines. And the markets will like that. But let's be clear, that is papering over this Mm. much deeper challenge in the most important bilateral relationship in the world that's absolutely not heading in a constructive direction. Well, so as you mentioned, um, the U.S. tends to be kind of self-focused. And I think, you know, if I think when the U.S. thinks about, writes about the 20th century, we think like, you know, wow, we played a big role in two world wars. We became the biggest economy in the world, you know, the, the have the most important military. I mean, we just think of ourselves as like the dominant player. And I wonder from both of you, but Ian, I'll start with you first. Do you think that what we're seeing in the 21st century is like the center of power move from not just the U.S. to China, but basically from the West to Asia? Certainly it's moving away from Europe. And the United States is not in decline, in my view, but American influence globally really is. And I think it's interesting to answer that question fully. If you look at the foreign policy establishment in the United States, Democrats and Republicans, they were almost all never Trumpers. Very different from the way we think about domestic policy in the U.S., which is uh, delineated along party lines. Mm -hmm. And they really believe, almost all of them, to a man, and they're almost all men, that if once Trump leaves office, that the United States can pretty much go back to the world order we used to have. And that's just wrong. And it's wrong largely because of China and Asia. Beijing is just not going to tolerate that. And uh, and the Americans aren't prepared to deal. Uh, George, what do you think? It's not going to be only China. But of course, China is growing as a biggest share of global GDP. It will just be a key player along with the United States, and then to a lesser extent, the European Union, which has its own internal problems. And by the way, China is growing not just because of the state, not just because of the large companies, but now has a very large group of smaller companies who are a bit like Silicon Valley, except they're all over the economy and developing all kinds of innovations that American companies aren't tackling anymore, such as one company, Royal, has produced the world's first foldable smartphone that doubles up as a smartphone and as an iPad. And they beat, huh. you know, all other companies to this. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit more, because I do think that people think like, yeah, I know China has a lot of economic power. But look, my, my you know, iPhone is designed in California. I mean, like, you know, China just executes, they don't create. D- disabuse people of that notion. Well, 
That is changing rapidly. And this company I just mentioned, Royal, was started by an ethnic Chinese who got his PhD at Stanford. Hmm. But he chose to return to China a few years ago to start his company there. First of all, because he makes flexible film and flexible film displays, a major target market of his is the automobile industry. And China makes 50% more new automobiles than the United States. Secondly, he can find the science and engineering workers there in China as well. So China now has some tremendous ingredients for innovation. It's got a huge home market. It has large numbers of relatively low-cost scientists and engineers. But very important, on top of that, China is encouraging to come home these ethnic Chinese who've been trained in the West, particularly in the USA. If you look in science and technology PhD programs in the USA, they're full of Chinese. Ian, I feel like for years... There's been that kind of quote circling where people will say, you know, man, if we could just if the government would just let us um, staple a green card to anybody who got a doctorate in the U.S., right, no matter what country they're from and let them stay here. Now, obviously, that never actually happened. Um, But there was that kind of thinking. I wonder if you see, I mean, you go all around the world, do you see more and more people getting their educations here, maybe, and then going home to their country that they're from? I do see that. But I also see more and more people not getting their education in the U.S. Uh, I mean, one thing I will say is that Trump's America First platform, I mean, whether or not he ends up building any piece of a wall, um, is a, a very explicit removal of a feeling of welcome for a lot of people around the world, especially people that have choices. I mean, if you live in Guatemala, Honduras, and you're facing, you know, sort of not just poverty, but massive personal and familial insecurity, you're going to try to get to the U.S. no matter what. If you are an educated engineer with orientation towards uh, and lots of people that want your skill set and you thinking about where you want to go to university, right? Uh, you know, you're, let's face it, the United States is less attractive to you. The percentages of graduate students in STEM from other countries around the world coming to the U.S. is down, I think, something like 10% year on year over the last couple of years. And yes, once they finished university, they're also more likely to go to other places. We should want to educate as many of those people as possible in the U.S. Even if they leave, these are still people that are spending meaningful amounts of time in the American system learning about American way of life and culture and rule of law and independent judiciary and media and entrepreneurialism. And at the very least, that means they're going to be carrying back with them to countries like China a desire to bring the best of both systems together. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and that is much more likely to lead to peace and sustainability long term um, than a whole bunch of people that have no exposure to the U.S. They're more likely to be scared and fearful and lash out when we say things they don't like. We're going to come back and talk more in just a minute about China and innovation and American competitiveness with Ian Bremmer, the president of Eurasia Group, and George Yip from Imperial College Business School. We'll look more at this question of whether some of the most creative minds in the world are increasingly leaving the U.S. And we'll also talk about why the Chinese are hiring Americans to teach creativity as well as problems that the Communist Party may pose. If you want to catch this whole segment and all of our segments, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to know your experiences with Chinese innovation over the years. You can just email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org. You can tweet at us. We're at iHubRadio. We'll be right back. 
In the early 1990s, a young widow got a job in sales at a huge company. She had grown up as one of seven children, and by the time she was widowed, she already had a small son of her own. She needed to support herself, so she worked really, really hard. But underneath it all, she had kind of romantic tastes. She loved shawls and Gone with the Wind and Jane Eyre. And then, a little more than a decade after she got that sales job, the woman became president of her massive company. It was like one of those classic American rags-to-riches tales, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Only the woman is an American. Her name is Dong Mingzhu, and she's one of the most powerful women in China. And she's such a tough boss that the saying is, where Sister Dong walks, grass doesn't grow. That's George Yip, who teaches marketing and strategy at Imperial College Business School in London. And he argues that China is becoming a competitor to the U.S. in ways that we may not yet be aware of. There's tremendous infrastructure for manufacturing, lots of ingenious and inventive executives, and a government that, when it wants to move technology forward, generally gets what it wants. For example... They're going to lead the world in electric cars because, one, they've got the pollution problem. Two, they don't have the oil. But three, being a top-down government, they're starting to install charging stations all over the country. So they're going to solve the chicken and egg problem. People don't buy electric cars until they're charging stations. And they don't put in charging stations until they're electric cars. But there is a top-down initiative now to put in charging stations all over. Ian Bremmer, who runs the consulting firm Eurasia Group, says President Trump's assertions, which date back years and years, that China's taking advantage of us, that we should negotiate hard on tariffs, it doesn't really seem to be intimidating the Chinese. I mean, China for many years had been saying, oh, we're very poor, we're small, we can't possibly do these things. And after Trump's election in the United States, President Xi suddenly was much more willing to be loud and proud on the global stage. In fact, China's been doing lots of the sorts of things that we think of Americans as doing, like, according to George Yip, bringing great talent to their shores. China now targets and attracts a lot of students from third world countries and is now in some ways doing a better job of attracting them than the USA is. And this is deliberate because they want to build up their influence and reputation with people from emerging countries. Bremer says that the frequent talk about America first and building a wall has made education in the U.S. for some of the world's most talented students a lot less desirable, which echoes what we heard a couple of years ago from a venture capitalist in Silicon Valley named Bilal Zuberi. Zuberi came here from Pakistan as a teenager, and he's watched the rise in nationalism, as well as increasing immigration restrictions, with serious concern. We are entering a stage where it's not just a matter of, oh, there's somebody down the road who may not like me. The hidden racism that may have been and and that we were obviously constantly as a society fighting against and trying to be better. Uh, it has become blatant. It's almost right. It's okay to to say racist or sexist things. We're already hearing about companies thinking about setting up uh, operations outside because they can't bring the employees here. So we might have to just put, keep them outside. And frankly, what this will do is drive away the best immigrant entrepreneurs that we have here. Ian Bremmer says policymakers in the U.S. aren't paying nearly enough attention to what's happening. And what's happening may be that the center of gravity is drifting away. There's still a presumption that we're obviously the best. And I think because China is a comparatively poor country, they're a middle-income country, they're an emerging market, 
there's an assumption that that means they're never going to be able to really innovate, that what they do is steal from the Americans, but they couldn't possibly develop world-changing technologies themselves. You couldn't in your right mind really want to live in China as opposed to the United States if you had a choice. And I think that's arrogance from a lot of Americans that haven't spent much time in China recently. Certainly there are things about China that are truly problematic. And I mean, you know, the air quality, which is better than it was, but it's still a disaster. Um, I mean, you know, food quality, these things for average Chinese is problematic. They don't, they don't want to necessarily still want to buy houses outside in terms of the potential to get their cash more into a safer place. Mm -hmm. But very, very quickly, China's becoming a place where you can develop a world-class, in some cases, even the world-class career. And if you combine that with some patriotism for Chinese that have watched their country go from zero to hero over the last 40 years of averaging 8% growth, a place where the China dream feels real for a lot of people, while in the United States, increasingly, many Americans think the system is rigged against them. You know, you are willing to discount China's authoritarianism for some of that stuff. George, what do you see? I, I just wonder, are there great Chinese minds who once would have tried to stay in America and, you know, get a job in New York or Raleigh or whatever, and, like, that's not necessarily happening anymore? Yeah, no, absolutely. They're going back to China. In fact, China has a formal program called the Thousand Talents Program that has incentives such as tax reductions for uh, scientists who come home. So they're very active in bringing these people back. And they also see they can actually become very rich in China. You can become a multimillionaire. You can become a billionaire in China. China has plenty of billionaires. Well, it sounds like they're doing what we have done, which is like have people from poorer countries come here, the best minds. And then, I mean, when you look at like Silicon Valley and who started those companies, the percentage of people who immigrated here is like it's off the charts compared to the population at large. And yet if those companies are created in the U.S., who benefits? In a lot of ways, the U.S. gets those jobs. Yeah. I mean, China wants to create um, a Silicon Valley kind of atmosphere. They have lots of science parks. So, you know, they're learning how that works. And one of the interesting things is that, you know, people often criticize the Chinese education system as, you know, not nurturing creativity. Well, interestingly, the Chinese government is paying an American university, Duke University, oh, really? to train Chinese university lecturers in how to make Chinese students more creative. So once again, uh, the U.S. is teaching China how to become more competitive. Now, I, I wonder about that, though, because it is hard to teach people creativity, especially in a culture that um, may value conformity more than the U.S. does. Like, I mean, you know, China and the U.S. both have their sort of ups, like good points and bad points. But can you really learn creativity in a seminar? Not, not in a seminar. There is this myth that the Chinese are very conformist. Actually, there's two sides to Chinese culture. On the one hand, the Chinese are very obedient when they're being monitored. But on the other hand, the Chinese are great rule breakers when they're not being monitored. Hmm. In this way, they're, say, very different from the Japanese, you know, who follow the rules and may stand at a red light when there are no cars around. The Chinese do not stand at the red light when there are no cars <laughs> around. Um, they, they'll even, you know, cross the road when it's green. So a lot of these entrepreneurs... I've seen it, I've seen are, it. Yeah, so uh, a lot of the entrepreneurs in China are rule breakers, and that's where the creativity is uh, coming from. 
Do you think do you think really getting China to be more innovative means changing the school system? Or do you think not necessarily the school system can teach basic skills and then and then something can have to happen afterwards within a company or whatever? Well, the school system, I think, is starting to change as well, because with a single child policy means that the children are more self-centered. They are less obedient. Um, So we're starting to see some change there. And, you know, enough of the Chinese elite send their children to study overseas that they're getting that creativity overseas, but then they come back to China. Mm -hmm. So don't think of China, the Chinese innovation ecosystem, as being just Chinese people trained in China. A very important, the most important part of it is ethnic Chinese trained in the West. Hmm. And uh, Ian, I wonder if you think when you talk to tech leaders, do you think that our tech companies, whether we're talking Apple or Amazon or Uber or whatever, are they worried about competition from Chinese companies that honestly are trying to do some of the same things that they're doing? They are. Uh, First, they're worried that the United States and China, if we end up in a Cold War fight on innovation and technology, and we are moving in that direction, that we're going to cut off um, a lot of the partnerships that these companies have taken advantage of. They do a lot of papers jointly, research jointly with Chinese and American, Chinese and European scientists, and that they fear that that will stop. They absolutely worry um, that the Chinese are is getting a lot of support from the government, making AI the most strategic sector, and that the Chinese have a lot more data uh, than the West does because there's no presumption of privacy and they have a lot more people. Mm-hmm. And if AI is not very smart, if it's just going from, you know, after the Americans do the ori- initial innovations, that then it's all about just learning a little bit more incremental improvements, go, 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 then there is a concern the Chinese are going to get better. And they already are indeed leading the Americans in things like facial recognition and voice recognition for that reason. But I wanted to respond to one thing that you we've been discussing because yeah. so far in this interview we've been mostly talking about how the Chinese are becoming much bigger, much more competitive, much more strategic, and so increasingly they're winning, or at least they might increasingly be winning in the future. And while I generally agree with that, let's point to at least two major downsides of China. Okay. The first is for all their rule-breakingness, there is really almost no sense of civic obligation on the part of Chinese in society today. The ethical values in China are nowhere close to where you would want them to be in a functional society. They'll take care of their family, but God forbid someone's fallen down in the middle of the street. Uh, You don't have a communal response. We got to take care of these people the way you do um, in a U.S. community or certainly in a Japanese community. I worry that over time, that's something that really hurts Chinese development. Also, for all of China's strategy, they're also consolidating their authoritarian regime. Xi Jinping is much stronger. The country is much more authoritarian today under one guy than it was 5, 10, 20 years ago. And that means that the transition ultimately from Xi to something else is more dangerous, the potential that the country falls apart. I wouldn't bet on that, but it's not 1%. It's, mm-hmm. Is it 5? Is it 10? Is it 20? It's much higher 
than the brittleness of the United States and its political institutions and its legitimacy. And so for all of the fact that China suddenly is becoming a dominant player in the global economy and technology space, let's not pretend that there aren't very serious problems in China's society that they aren't actually addressing. George, let me ask you about that. You've written so much about the rise of Chinese innovators, all these incredible companies that are not just, you know, ripping other people off, but that have amazing ideas. Do you worry about whether it's the Communist Party or, as Ian was saying, this kind of, uh, you know, a civic culture that's that's quite different from ours? Just give me a sense of how what, how you feel about this stuff. I, I, I agree that the lack of civic culture is a problem. And it happened because of the Cultural Revolution. So it destroyed the civic culture. And it's taking time to come back. But again, interestingly, the government has a strategy for dealing with it, and that is to bring back Confucianism. So Confucianism says everybody has a place in society, and Confucianism is basically a network of obligations. And in terms of the political system, I'm, I'm less worried about the dominance of Xi Jinping. The party is very powerful, 88 million members. And he is at the apex of it, and he's made himself uh, very public. And I think he's done that partly because he's pushing for some transformations. So, you know, he, he has some positive things he wants to do, like cutting down on corruption. And he's realized that he can only do that by making himself more visible and bigger for a while. But I think the party system will sort of pull him in in the end. Hmm. Um, George, has it mattered whether Donald Trump's in power or Barack Obama is in power? I mean, have we just kind of been somewhat oblivious to the the power that China has been building up? And does it even matter what administration it has been? Well, I mean, to give um, Donald Trump some credit, he he is the one who's been vocal and woken up to the challenge of China, which the you know, previous presidents haven't done. Or maybe it's a coincidence that Trump is in office now, but indeed China is stepping forward to the stage. And because of Trump, you know, at the World Economic Forum, the previous one, not the most recent one, Xi Jinping suddenly became, you know, the world leader who was advocating free trade because America deliberately said we're no longer in favor of free trade. Hmm. A final question for both of you, and I'll start with you, George. Maybe you've all been you've both been going to China for for decades, I'm guessing. And I wonder if you can tell a story that maybe illustrates to you how China has changed in terms of innovation in the in the time that you've been visiting. It could be old. It could be new. Whatever, you know, sort of pops out to you. Well, even um, even as recently as about seven, eight years ago, I was staying in a I initially started out staying in a four-star hotel, part of an American chain. When I used the um, gym and the locker rooms, mm -hmm. the lockers were numbered randomly because when they built the hotel 15 years ago, they'd pulled in some peasant off the field to stick the numbers. Now, within the time I was there, a Marriott rises, a five-star hotel across the street. And, you know, it is more luxurious than most Marriott's in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so that is just transformed. As in Nanjing a few years ago, at their train station, their train station looks like a super modern airport. Hmm. So those are the kinds of transformations that you see in China. Hmm. 
And Ian, is there something that jumps out to you in terms of like how things have changed? And well, look, I think on the plus side, you have world class cities that have popped up literally from nothing. The kind of thing that you see in Dubai, um, you're seeing all over China at a scale that no one has imagined. On the downside, um, the Chinese are now emitting double the carbon that the United States is. Climate change is coming at us in a really big way. You know, being a global superpower also comes with global challenges. And uh, the Chinese don't, they have all the long-term strategy, but they are still a middle-income economy. And they're going to have a really hard time being able to respond to some of these historically first-world type problems. Ian Bremmer is the president of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. George Yip is a professor of marketing and strategy at Imperial College Business School in London. He's also the co-author of Pioneers, Hidden Champions, Changemakers, and Underdogs, Lessons from China's Innovators. Thanks so much to both of you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. If you want to read more about Dong Mingzhu, the widow who rose from salesperson to president of her company in just about a decade, we've got a fascinating profile on her at our website, innovationhub.org. And we'll also have a variety of views on where innovation in China stands. (laughs) 